0: I so appreciate the songs that worship team chose this morning. I don't know if you caught it, but so many of them were bringing us back to the power and authority of God, to who God is, and that we are his children, and that power and authority is something that he exercises over all things. And this morning, that gives us a couple of questions to answer, and we want to look through the text to answer it, but then if, if, God, if we can just sing that God is all-powerful, and if we believe that, how many of you believe God is all-powerful? Let me just say, okay every hand in the room, God is all-powerful, then why do we worry and get overwhelmed with circumstances? Why do we continually battle sin on our own and we don't see victory there? Why is there this disconnect between what we know about God and what we put into practice in everyday life? And I need and overwhelmed and I'm not sure really how to deal with some things. And to come back to texts like this morning help me sort of center myself in who God is and come back to using that as a foundation that God is all-powerful. He has authority over all things. Charles Colson tells the story in his book, Loving God, of Alexander um, Solzhenitsyn. And, and he's talking about Solzhenitsyn. Sol, and, and he's talking about that his life, he's put into a Siberian work camp in Russia for speaking out against the, the Russian regime and for his um, Christianity, and he's put in this this work camp, and he gets to a point it says where there was a pattern of backbreaking labor, slow starvation, and it led to just this hopelessness that became too much to bear and and one day he put down a shovel and he sat down on a bench, and he stopped, and he knew full well that that action would cost him his life, and amid that dejection and, and that that despair, and that depression, he suddenly felt a powerful presence. Beside him, hunched over, an old man was drawing on a stick, with a stick in the sand at his feet. And, and, and he just leaned down and he drew a cross. He drew a cross. And as Solzhenitsyn stared out at the rough outline, his entire perspective shift, Colson writes. He knew he was, he was merely one man against the all-powerful Soviet empire. Yet in that moment, he knew the power of the cross. He knew that if Jesus could go to the cross, and if he could endure that, and if he could conquer sin and death, that for the sake of Christ, he could stand. And he could stand and, and pick up his shovel and work. And he slowly got up, picked up his shovel, and went back to work. He had no idea that his writings would influence many other people later because he was faithful to God. Because the the presence of God, the power of God, is what enabled him to stand up and get through horrific circumstances. Now chances are, none of you were in a Siberian work camp this week. If you were, talk to me later. We'll have some prayer and we'll work that out. But we all have circumstances that we go through that we're wondering, how am I going to deal with this? How am I going to get through this? And, and the answer that we're going to see in the text today is we need to come back to the foundation that God has authority over all things. His authority is over the, the natural and the supernatural. In fact, there is nothing in the natural or supernatural realms that God does not have authority over. It doesn't matter what you encounter, whether that be the circumstances you encounter this week, or sickness, or heartache, or death, or any effect of evil in this world, God has authority And power over it. And this morning, I hope that's encouraging. I hope as we study that this is a a morning of saying, you know what? I've been worrying about the wrong things. I've been afraid of the wrong things. Because we respond to these circumstances and we respond to things pressing in on us with fear and worry and distress. And we're saying something about our trust in our Savior as we do. Turn with me to Luke chapter 8. Luke chapter 8. And we're going to take two two more miracles of Christ, and we've been following along his Galilean ministry. And Jesus has been gradually expanding his disciples' view of who he is. He's been revealing more and more and answering the question, who are you? And now today we're going to add the question, not just who is Jesus, but how will we respond? And so in the next four stories, Luke is going to show Jesus' power and authority over all things, over every realm of existence. And we get two of those today. Luke chapter 8, verses 22, Uh, we'll start at 22 and go um, the next two stories. If you don't have a Bible, there's a black one under the chair right around you. We'd love for you to take that. If you don't have one at home, take that with you, our gift to you. We want you to have God's Word. It is that important and that powerful. So let's start by reading 22 through 25 together, and then we'll unpack that. One day he got into a boat, Jesus, he got into a boat with his disciples, and he said to them, Let us go across to the other side of the lake. So they set out. And as they sailed, he fell asleep. And a windstorm came down on the lake, and they were filling with water and were in danger. And they went and woke him, saying, Master, Master, we are perishing. And he awoke and rebuked the wind and the raging waves. And they ceased, and there was calm. He said to them, Where is your faith? And they were afraid. And they marveled, saying to one another, Who then is this that he commands even winds and water? And they obey him. And in this first story, we see that Jesus has authority over the physical world, including every circumstance you encounter. Have faith in him. Trust him. He is sovereign over every circumstance we face. Let me read that again. Jesus has authority over the physical world, including every circumstance you encounter. And I'd underline every in your notes. Every circumstance you encounter, have faith in Him. As we unpack this story, we we start with verse 22. And the setting there is Jesus has been teaching all day. And and we know this is recorded in Mark and Matthew as well. And and He's been teaching all day. And and He comes toward the end afternoon and He says to His disciples, Hey, let's go have a little boat ride together. And He gets all the disciples in the boat and He says, Let's go across to the other side of the lake. Now, by lake, this is the Sea of Galilee. And it's probably about a five to seven mile trip that they were going to take across to the other side, Um, going from the upper west of the lake to the upper east. And they're in a boat that looks a lot like this. This is a replica. But it's important to understand the story, because if you think they're like in a cruise ship, story makes no sense. But they're in this little boat that 12, 13 guys would have a hard time getting into. But they're crammed in there. And it looks like some other people sort of were following them in other boats, And they're going to the other side. And in the next picture, this is a picture from Capernaum, from the side where Jesus was teaching, looking across. It's a little hard to see um, in the distance there, a little bit of haze. But you can see the taller mountains or the the taller cliffs, hills on the other side. And they were about to make this journey. Not an exceptional journey. Maybe a couple hours. Remember, a number of the disciples were fishermen. Fishermen. They were used to being out on this lake. They were used to being in one of these fishing boats. This was a no brainer. Let's go across, have some rest, and we're good. And so they obey, they set out. And in verse 23, we see the very next thing. And as they sailed, he fell asleep. So Jesus, he's been teaching. And we see in this story, we see a beautiful picture of Jesus' humanity and his divinity because he's 100% man, he's 100% God, he got tired. I, I, I did want to make a whole point about Jesus taking naps, and we should take naps. In, in difficult circumstances, right? No, that, that's not really where I'm going with that. that that's more of a um, meme material. But, um, and, and so it's Jesus' idea to go out, right? Who, who initiated this? Jesus. He said, let's go. And so as they're going, he gets in the front, he he lays down, and he takes a nap. He falls asleep. He's tired. He was a real person, just like you, just like I. And then the windstorm came. Now, Jesus knew this was coming. This didn't surprise him. It wasn't like, oh, no. But he knew this was coming. It was part of his plan. And, And in some of the bullet points there, the first one is sometimes God allows storms in our life to teach us something about himself and to build our faith. Sometimes God allows storms in our life to teach us something about himself and to build our faith. Jesus intentionally had the disciples go across the lake knowing full well a storm would come up. And he allowed that because he's trying to teach them something about who God is. He's trying to just blow their faith out of the water, their their puny faith, and make it a huge faith. And it's going to take this storm to do that, to show his glory. You know, so many times, as you think of you and I, and, and I talk with a lot of people, so when, when were the times where you really grew with God? When was the time that you really deepened your faith? In almost every case, people have described to me difficult times. And I went through something, and I saw God at work. I went through this, and God was faithful. And it just expanded their faith. We know this is true. And at the end of that bullet point needs to be our response. We need to be ready to learn. Ready to learn. See, so much much of these two stories is about response and our response and what some of the characters' response is. And when we go through things, are we ready to learn? Are we ready to have our faith expanded? Or are we in distress and worry and fear? Now, Now, I have to say, storms are part of spiritual growth and God allows them sometimes, but sometimes we bring them on ourselves. Sometimes we do sinful, stupid things, right? Fair enough? And we bring those storms on ourselves. Don't don't blame God for those. That's on us. But here's the beauty of it. Because God has authority over all things, including sin and evil, He can use that to help you grow if we surrender to Him, if we're willing to learn. He is still there waiting for us to repent and turn to Him. And so we want to have an attitude of a learner as we hit these storms rather than anger. Proverbs three eleven and 12 says, My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof. Moms and dads just use that every time you discipline your kids. No, sometimes that's not met very, very well, is it? I am despising. I'm angry right now. But we, we get to this point in how we discipline our kids. My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof. For the Lord... Reproves him who he loves as a father, the son in whom he delights. Maybe as you're going through things and, and, and maybe this week some things are going to happen and you're going to be like, these are circumstances that aren't fair. I don't deserve them. Maybe think of them as, wow, God must really love me to allow me to go through this, to allow me to learn this this week. That's the attitude that will make a difference. One other note, it says that Jesus said, let's go to the other side. There's an implication there that he said they'll make it. And so part of their trust issue is they're not even believing that they're going to get to the other side. Just a little side note as we read through the the rest of the stories. And so we continue in in verse 23. And it says um, that a windstorm came down on the lake. And the wording there is a huge storm, a wind of windstorms. And so you, you've heard me talk about how the languages of the time would often use repetition to show how great something is. And that's what's happening here. This is a huge windstorm coming down on them. And, and this can happen on the Sea of Galilee. You've heard me talk about it. You've heard others talk about it. But just the geography of the, of the region, Sea of Galilee sits almost 700 feet below sea level. Then you have those hills around that I was showing you that could be about 1,200 feet above sea level. So you have about a 2,000-foot difference there. And they have these deep ravines, a couple coming from the west, a few coming from the Golan Heights to the east. And the wind starts to whip down those ravines, and a storm can be on you like that. Because then you have the cold air from the mountains rushing down these ravines. It hits the warm air over the sea, and now you have turbulence, and, and it, it just it can... It can create a mess really fast and I've told the story before of when uh, about four years ago when we had a group in Israel and we were hiking Mount Arbel which is right on the edge of the Sea of Galilee and we started out in a nice sunny warm day and this was only about an hour hike and we got halfway up the hike 30 minutes later and it is raining and lightning and thunder it changed that fast and then we're on top, and I, and I, I still remember Marianne, Marianne and I running for cover. We're at the back, and lightning's hitting around us. And, and it, Please go to Israel. It's perfectly safe. <laughs> I have never had this happen again, but in my mind, it's like, this is what storms can happen in the Sea of Galilee. We almost died. Okay, no, we didn't. We were safe. That's right. <laughs> we were laughing about it in the bus once we got to safety. <laughs> But I can picture now the disciples out on the sea, in the middle of the sea, and all of a sudden this storm comes up like this. You don't see it coming. It's not like you see the clouds coming. It can happen without any warning. And and they say, in fact, even now it happens on the sea. valley. They say waves start to be about seven feet high at least and just start crashing. Did you see the boat? You put 13 grown men in that boat. The thing about boats is the more weight you put in, the more they sink. So this is getting down near, near water level. Seven-foot waves. These guys are scared. They were filling with water, it says, and were in danger. If a fisherman says the boat's about to sink and they're in danger, who's been on the lake his whole life, then they're in danger. That really is happening. They were in real danger. But I put a subscript, if Jesus wasn't there. If Jesus wasn't there but he was and he was with them and so we get to verse 24 and by the way jesus is still sleeping he see take naps and they went and woke him saying master master we are perishing and right there you get the first conclusion that they've already come to that's false they've they've said we're dying They have come to that conclusion, and they aren't dying. They have the Lord of the universe, the creator of all things, in their boat with them. It was a conclusion that wasn't warranted. Mark records a little more of what they say, but Luke's just getting to the point here about the faith. And right now, their fear is in the wrong thing. Their fear is in the storm and the circumstances. All is lost. They feel no way out. We sometimes feel that way. That helpless feeling. And I don't know, this is just my imagination, but I would wonder if a couple of them were thinking, Jesus, you told us to go out. We were obeying you. I'm following you, and this still happens to me. Ever felt that way? And that's coming from a misconception that if we follow Jesus, everything's hunky dory. And that's the health and wealth heresy that's going around America. No, it's going to be hard. We're still going to have trials but we have someone to meet them with us. The next bullet point in your notes is the worry and distress of fear usually come when we have misconceptions about God. The worry and distress of fear usually come when we have misconceptions about God. See, fear and faith are opposites. Like, you can't fear the storm and have faith in Jesus at the same time. It's one or the other, and Luke is brilliantly showing us right now it's fear of the storm and not faith in Christ. Who knows what they were thinking? Maybe they thought Jesus made a mistake because they didn't know he knew all things, his omniscience. Maybe they thought he didn't care, and Mark's wording sins to bring that out. Don't you care that we're perishing? And they didn't trust his love. Maybe they didn't understand his power. But whatever it was, their misconception changed their whole way of thinking about the circumstances. We can do that. We have filters and we get ideas in our head and we start to run with those ideas and it changes how we view circumstances. There's a story uh, told about a, a husband that goes out for the day and his wife thinks he's golfing. And she comes home and he's sitting on the couch and she's been working all day and she is mad. Why? He's been golfing and relaxing all day. Turns out he spent the day going out and preparing a beautiful birthday surprise for her, Get arranging child care for the evening, getting reservations, buying a gift, and he had everything laid out in the other room that she didn't know about, ready to go. See, perception and her perception affected how she viewed her husband, and that all changed when she got the truth. See how, see how that works? We do this all the time and we let our minds run away with us, and we construct our own little package of what we think truth is. In this case, it wasn't true. They had no idea who God was. And Jesus is calling them on it, but not not, not in, a, in a way that is going to, to cause more fear, but in a way that's going to teach and instruct. So Jesus is asleep there. And, and another thought about, about God's authority and circumstances is sometimes God seems absent. And we struggle with trust. We struggle with waiting. How could Jesus be asleep? Well, he trusted in God the Father. He trusted that God would wake him up at just the right time. And we go on and we see what Jesus did. At the the second half of 24, and he awoke. And he rebuked the wind and the raging waves, and they ceased and there was calm. With a word, he took care of the situation. Man, that should send shivers up and down your spine. How powerful is our God that he can stand up and say, Stop! And the waves and the storm stop. And and there's actually a couple miracles here. The storm stopping is one, but the calm sea is the second. Because after a storm, it takes a couple hours usually for the Sea of Galilee to calm down. But in a moment, the storm stopped, seas calm. If you're a fisherman and you've never seen something like this, what are you feeling at that point? Uh-oh. Oh, boy. What just happened? And that's a, that's a little bit of what we read. There was calm. And then Jesus turns to them. And he says, where is your faith? And that's a question I want us to remember beyond today. Where is your faith? See, it was in the storm. It was in the boat. It was in their own efforts. But it wasn't in who Jesus was. And he, he's pointing that out to them to increase their faith. To help them understand what's going on here. Where is it? Is it gone? Who is it in? See, faith in their, their ability isn't much faith. Faith is great, but who we have faith in is what gives it power. And faith in Jesus is the only thing here that would bring hope. And so they were fearing the storm rather than being in awe and fear of God. The storm had authority in their lives rather than God control in their lives. And Jesus is showing that He has authority over nature, He has authority over circumstances. It's why they could trust Him. See, this is, uh, you often hear me say theology matters. Well, theology matters if we can get it off the page of a theology book and into our lives. And so we can have this theology, like we talked about at the beginning, of I know God is all powerful, but then how we respond to circumstances tells us whether we believe that or not. I don't have to worry and be distressed and run around hoping that I can wake God up somehow to get him to act. He already is in control of everything. And He already is executing His plan. And that should bring an incredible peace. Now the disciples then hear this. They have a choice. They can get angry, they can get upset, or they can respond. And it says, they and they were afraid, rightfully so, and they marveled. And you see that fear turning to awe. You see that fear turning to worship. And they marveled, saying to one another, Who then is this that he commands even winds and water, and they obey him? That's the right question. Who then is this? And that was the question that would blow their faith up and make it huge, is when they started to realize who Jesus was. See, they've seen him heal people, but a lot of healings you could explain away. Oh, they, you know, they were getting better anyway. And his word just gave them the encouragement to get up and, and actually get better. So, so you could explain some of those away. And, and different people tried to do different things like that. But people didn't get up and calm a whole storm and a sea in a moment. And so this was a huge event for them. In fact, in Jewish history, one of the things that they said and one of the things they, they commonly knew was that only Yahweh, only the Lord, could calm the sea. And so that's a phrase they're used to. They've memorized this growing up. In Psalm 89, 8 and 9 it says, O oh Lord God of hosts, who is mighty as you are? O oh, Yahweh, with your faithfulness all around you, you rule the raging of the sea. When its waves rise, you still them. So if you've grown up hearing this, and all of a sudden this man who was sleeping in your moat stands up and says, Stop! And it gets calm. He's not just a man. He is doing What only God can do. And so they ask, who then is this? It's the right question. He commands and they obey. And that's when their faith expanded. See, faith is a trust in God's saving power through Jesus Christ. It's a trust that God will work things out according to His plan. It's a submission to His plan and giving up of our will because we trust Him. It's not that we sit back and do nothing, but we step out and act by faith doing what He would like us to do. And so God used this trial as a way to show who He was. Trials give us an opportunity to display God's greatness. And what are you facing right now? What have you faced this last week? We have a whole number of things on our prayer prayer group uh, of of people that are facing different um, things in the hospital, different sicknesses, different, other, different situations. But what are we facing? And if we start to realize this is an opportunity to show God's greatness by how I respond, if I'm running around, like I said, scared and worried and people see that, I've shown a side of God that isn't true. But if I can show that I know God doesn't take a break and I know God meets every need and every circumstance and I can have faith in that and trust in that and a peace that passes understanding in that, now I'm showing God to others. Now I'm showing who He is. Our response tells the story. Tells the story of where we're at and testifies to other people who God is. Where is your faith? We get to the next story, verse 26. And this is a, a, so the the sea is calm. They make it to the other side. I don't know if the disciples, when they get off the boat, start kissing the ground and and saying, uh, you know, breathing a sigh. I don't know. I I like to imagine these things because these actually happened. And, but they get to the other side, to the garrisons, it says in verse 26, and immediately they're hit with a second story where God is again expanding their faith and their vision of who He is. So we get to 26. I'm going to read 26 through 33 and then we'll unpack that. Then they sailed to the country of the Gerasenes, which is opposite Galilee. When Jesus had stepped down on land, there met Him a man from the city who had demons. For a long time He had worn no clothes. He had not lived in a house but among the tombs. Now... <laughs> Okay, I got to throw in a little aside. Again, if I'm the disciples and I've just been through what we, we went through on the sea and we get to shore and I'm happy we're there and all of a sudden this guy with thousands of demons in him comes. I'm like, really? Really? I've gone through enough. And here we go again. 28. When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell down before him and said with a loud voice, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg you, do not torment me for he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. For many a time it had seized him. He was kept under guard, bound with chains and shackles, but he would break the bonds, and he would be driven by the demon into the desert. Jesus then asked him, What is your name? And he said, Legion, for many demons had entered him. And they begged him not to command them to depart into the abyss. Now a large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him to let them enter these. So he gave them permission. Then the demons came out of the man and entered the pigs. And the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and drowned. It's a lot of bacon lost. And we see the first half of this story again, God's power on display who He is on display. And you have to take both of these stories together because they are showing the power of Jesus but also the compassion of Jesus as Jesus helps these men, as Jesus comes and rescues them from the chaos and destruction, the results of this fallen world. So when we go back and unpack this a little bit, verse 26, they sailed to the country of the Gerasenes. And, and we're not exactly sure who, where this is. It's opposite, the opposite side of the lake. They were on the west side of the lake I don't know if I have a map up there at all. Um, Oh, there we go. So they were in the upper left of the lake by Capernaum. You see that there. And there's a a lot of debate because different texts actually have different wording for where this is. It looks as if the region over the time changed names and and there's lots of names. It could be where you see Gergesa. It's one of the places where it is that's um, also modern day Kersey. Um, some people have thought hippas are somewhere in that area there because there's places where you could see pigs run down into the sea. If you look down to the lower right of the Sea of Galilee, you see Gadara. That's another place. That could be Gadarenes. And you can see how these names all come together. Even today, when you're in Israel, you'll go through signs and you'll see five different spellings for a site we're going to. And and I remember asking the guide one time, I said, so which is it? Which one's right? He said, (laughs) one of them. They, they all get you to the right place, don't they? <laughs> I'm like, okay, that's a different mindset than I'm used to. Um, and so the, these names had different variations. We're not sure where. It, it's, I'm going to go just say across the Sea of Galilee because that's what the text says. And so it's somewhere across the Sea of Galilee. It doesn't really matter to the story where. That's just some, some extra. But he goes to the east side, which is part of the Decapolis, which are these towns that are Gentile, largely Gentile towns. So this is significant because Jesus is moving from the Jewish regions over to the Gentile regions, at least for this story. And so uh, he's over there in verse 26. We see they sail there. And when Jesus steps out in 27, they're met by a man from the city who had demons. And you see a description here of what sin and being under the control of Satan has done to this man. He, He wore no clothes. He was naked. Running around. He, he couldn't live in a house. He lived among the tombs which were on the outskirts and people were, were not real, real willing to go there, especially when he is there. You know, just a side note, Matthew and Mark mentioned two men rather than one. It's not that Luke is wrong because there was still one man there as well, but Luke is focusing in on the guy that did the talking, the, the main character where Matthew and Mark are giving us a little bit more of the, the background and more of the scenery. And so this man has been demon-possessed for a long time. If you look down at 29 even, it says he was kept under guard and bound with chains and shackles. But he would break the bonds and be driven by the demon into the desert. So he's controlled by the demon, but he is breaking chains. He has supernatural strength because of this demon possession. There is no hope for this man. He's under the firm, complete control of this demon. And, and we know that Satan wants to destroy humankind. It, this goes back to, our, to what we talked about last week. We are made in what? On God's image. So we are constant reminders to Satan of who God is. And so that is one of the reasons why his goal is to destroy you in any way he can, to corrupt you, to bring you down, because it, 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 this might be a shocker, it might not be all about you. It might be that he is trying to gain superiority over God by destroying what God has made and what's in his image. And so we see the effects of the demon possession on this man. He has no hope. He's been corrupted. Satan is trying to to blot out the image of God in him. I've got to say, and I've said this before, so, so he was pretty much like we are before the power of Christ comes in because we have no hope, and we are marred by sin, and we are slaves to sin and destined for death. C.S. Lewis said of himself about before conversion, he says, I was a zoo of lusts, a bedlam of ambitions, a nursery of fears, a harem of fondled hatreds. My name was Legion. And he so brilliantly compares himself to this demon. Just a side note, believers, those that have given their life to Christ, you cannot be possessed by a demon. I get that question a lot. A demon cannot possess a person that has the Holy Spirit indwelling them. But you can be influenced by a demon. You can be tempted. We can give ourselves over to some of their ideas and some of that influence. And so we must be careful. As you hear this story, you might also be thinking, haven't we done an exorcism already in Luke? And we have. Back in Luke chapter 4 in in the synagogue. But why here? Why is this another one? And, And there's some things that are different here that Luke is showing the total dominance of the power of God. That God is completely dominant over evil. And so in this case, we have the quantity and the power of demons that is far greater than we have in any other story. We we also see Luke focusing in on the responses which we don't have in the other story. And so Luke is is sharing this story with us as well to help us understand how great is our God, how great is our God and how we should respond. And so we see that that first bullet point is without Jesus, sin corrupts and controls. And we see that in this whole description of this man. And then we see moving on from there in 28, the, the response of The demons. The response of the demons is that Jesus has absolute authority and power over the demons. This is so cool. You've got to read this and see God's power. In verse 28, when when he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell down before him and said with a loud voice, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High? I beg you, do not torment me. He's not falling down in worship. He's falling down in begging. he's, He's begging for his life. These demons are. This shows the authority, and the demon knew it. The demon knew. It, like, the demons always knew who Jesus was before the humans did, because they were there. They, they know Him from all eternity. And they say, "What have you with me to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High? I beg you, do not torment me." And so their first response is to recognize Jesus' power, that he has absolute power over them. They're begging Jesus for mercy. This man that no human could tame is begging Jesus because he sees the presence of true power. Verse 29, For he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. And and the tense there is he was beginning to command. And if we compare it with the other passages... What happened here is Jesus goes up to him and he's starting to say, come out of the man and the demon's begging for his life. This is all happening at the same time. And so Jesus listens to him because he's teaching here. And we saw the, the depth of that possession. And then verse 30, Jesus then asked him, what is your name? And he said, legion. And legion in the, in the Roman army was five, 6,000 soldiers. And they were organized for battle. And, and legion here, it doesn't necessarily mean there was five or 6,000 demons, but it means that there were many, many demons, and they were organized for battle. And they were begging for their life at Jesus' feet. Bach, in his commentary, wrote that Jesus may have been outnumbered, but he was not outmatched. I love that. that that's, that's my takeaway of the passage today. He was outnumbered, but not outmatched. And if you look at what they were begging in 31, and they begged him not to command them to depart into the abyss. The abyss, if you read like Revelation 21 through 3 and some other places, the abyss was where they understood would be the final resting place of Satan and the demons, where they would be bound and constrained. And so this represented the end of their life, the place of the dead. And so they're begging, don't send us there. In 32 and 33, we see this large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and probably within sight. And they're like, "Oh, let's go! Let us go into the pigs!" And so Jesus gave them permission to catch. Even that wording, I'd, I'd highlight that in my Bible. Permission means someone has authority. I don't go to my kids and ask for permission to do things. I was wondering if it was okay to um, give you vegetables tonight. No, no, no. I'm the dad. Susie's the mom. They're getting vegetables. And they're sitting there until they eat them. They they asked permission to go into the pigs. And Jesus gave them permission. Then the demons came out of the man and entered the pigs. And the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and drowned. We know from one of the other accounts about 2,000 swine were lost that day. Now I, I do that, but that's where people have gone with the story. How could this be? And that's where the townspeople are gonna go in the next section. They're, they're gonna be like, What my pigs? And they forget that the guy is healed sitting there. What is worth more, animals or people? We we need to understand that. Don't, don't answer that. Don't. <laughs> Why did, God let them, why did Jesus let them go into the swine? We don't know completely. Some have said, okay, that seems like a, an incredible loss of animal life. Um, that was definitely a financial loss. And we don't know completely why, but it looks as if God, Jesus is specifically doing that because it will show the destructive power of the demons and it will show that the man is healed. Okay? So the man's sitting there clean. How do you know he's healed? Well, you just saw the demons go somewhere else and what they did to the pigs. Just a little aside, just for sake of humor, the abyss that the demons asked not to go in, the the wording there had to do with like a watery grave. So to get out of a watery grave, they asked to go into the swine who they drove to a watery grave. Just the irony here is so rich and so beautiful as you dig into it. Jesus could have done this because the the benefit to the community of a human being healed is so much greater than 2,000 pigs. You know, the, the pigs already were a problem around the Sea of Galilee for the Jews because they were unclean, And so you had all these things, the authors had no problem with 2,000 pigs going into the sea. We'll leave that there. But we see in the response of the demons, Jesus has absolute authority and power of the demons. We see God's power over evil and the dominion of evil. And then we move to the response of the people and the response of the man, in the rest of the section. In verse 34, when the herdsmen saw what had happened, they fled and told it in the city and in the country. Yeah, I'd I'd be afraid. Again, fear comes into this. The the demons are afraid of Jesus. Now the the herdsmen are afraid of the, the sheer power that they just saw exhibited. They fled, told it in the city and in the country. Then people came out to see what had happened, and they came to see Jesus, and they found the man from whom demons had gone, sitting at the feet of Jesus, a position of discipleship, a position of learning, clothed and in his right mind and they were afraid this is the guy that broke the shackles that no man had been able to tame and so they were afraid at what happened here and in this description this is what Jesus promised when he said he'd free the captive he'd bring liberty to the captives and he's sitting here instead of being driven by the deacons the demons <laughs> sorry deacons) <laughs> <laughs> no emails, please. <laughs> He's clothed instead of naked. He's in his right mind instead of thrashing and breaking chains. He's calm like the sea. Because Jesus has authority over nature, the natural world, and he has authority over the supernatural world. What a picture of new life in Christ. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation and this man becomes a picture of salvation where god can take anyone no matter the circumstances no matter the sin that we are in and because of the power of the cross where he shed his blood in our place and took that payment he can change us to be new creatures in him this is exciting this is where it's okay to say amen amen Amen. Because we are new in Christ. And I don't care what your background is. And if you're sitting here and you've never given your life to Christ, I guarantee it's not as bad as Legion. God can save anyone from anything because He has authority over all things. And we've got to submit to Him and give ourselves to Him. And it goes on to see what I think are some of the saddest verses of the section. So they come and they see this man sitting there healed. What a beautiful day. What a beautiful picture of what God is bringing to their region, what Jesus is bringing to their region. And they were afraid. And in verse 36, And those who had seen it told them how the demon-possessed man had been healed. They heard the story. And all the people of the surrounding country of the Gerasenes asked him to depart from them, for they were seized with great fear. So he got into the boat and returned. They had the greatest opportunity to see what Jesus could do in their life and they were afraid that it might turn their life upside down and so they asked him to leave. And Jesus did because he won't force himself on us. And he did. And that breaks my heart that they would ask him to leave that they would lose this opportunity. They were the unfertile soil. They didn't want to be changed. They liked their sin. They liked their lifestyle. You could say they wanted to wallow like pigs in their, their sin. And they drove the Savior out. And so many times we can drive the Savior, not out of our lives if we're believers, but we can drive what He's trying to do away from our lives by our resistance and by our stubbornness and by our fear. And we can cling to our anxiety and our worry about the circumstances we're in and the situation, and and we can cling to sin and not see victory over sin because we are clinging to it and we are stopping Jesus from working in our lives at that time. One man wrote a poem about this, about their rejection of Jesus. John Oxenham says, Rabbi, be gone. Thy powers bring loss to us and ours. Our ways are not as thine. Thou lovest men, we swine. Oh, get you hence omnipotence and take this fool of thine. His soul, what care we for his soul? What good to us that thou hast made him whole since we have lost our swine. sin do we hold on to? Sometimes I hear people say, I can't turn to Christ because I just really like doing such and such. Oh, Jesus has so much better for you. He has so much more to offer and a fuller, richer life that will actually satisfy, that won't be a broken cistern, that will actually meet your needs if we will trust him and come to But then finally, we see the response of the healed man. And that response is real change that results in proclamation. Real change that results in proclamation. Let's read 38 and 39. The man from whom the demons had gone begged that he might be with him. But Jesus sent him away saying, Return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. And he went away. He obeyed. He went away proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. And we see this man who was healed and truly changed. Wanting to to go with the disciples, wanting to follow Jesus. And Jesus knows he's about to turn toward Jerusalem. He's about to turn toward the cross. And instead he says, I want you to stay here. Stay at home and share Jesus. Oh, there's some lessons there too. Sometimes we think I need to go to Mexico or I need to go to faraway places to share Jesus. Start with next door. Start with the next cubicle. That's what Jesus has them do. He says, you have a story. I've changed you. I've done a work in your life. Now go tell people. This is good news. And so while Jesus was driven away from Gentile territory, he left a missionary. And he left a man to spread the good news. And I love that he immediately obeyed. He went around telling people what Jesus had done. Sometimes that's how simple witnessing to our neighbors and our coworkers is. You don't have to pull out the four spiritual laws. You can say, hey, this is what Jesus did in my life. You know, I was going through some tough times last week. This is how Jesus helped me. People will listen to your stories. Don't be ashamed to share them. Proclaim them. Again, the townspeople feared the wrong thing. They feared the absence of their sin. They feared what would happen if... They turned to Christ. What would happen if they saw Christ change lives in their town, but they didn't fear the power of Jesus? The man saw Jesus change him, and his fear turned to awe and turned to worship. One group runs from Jesus. The other worships. That's the response that we need to think through. You know, a story like this is hard for us in Western mindset because we're not used to talking about demons and talking about the supernatural. And, and you've heard me say before, you've heard Pastor Andrew say, we have to be careful of the extremes on this, right? Sometimes we can give Satan too much credit. We can say he has too much power and we're afraid that Satan might be under the chair right now. Or Satan might be out under your car or, you know, it, it took twice to start. That was Satan. Or it never starts. And we see Satan under every rock, and we give him too much credit, and we live in fear of Satan. This comes back to what's our response, fear of the wrong thing, fear of Satan. But what did we see in the story today? Jesus has absolute authority over evil sin and Satan. There's nothing to fear there. But we can go the other way, and we can say, well, Satan um, has no power. Well, Satan's not even real, maybe. That little pitchfork guy, huh? And we forget that he is real and he is powerful. He does want to destroy us. He is trying to influence us. He's trying to tempt us. And so in the middle there is recognizing that Satan has, has power, but he doesn't have all power. The one that is in us is greater. And that gives us hope and that keeps us from worry, worry and that keeps us from fear. I, I'm going to give you two C.S. Lewis quotes today, so this is the second one. About this, he says, there are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence, the other is to believe and to feel an, exes- an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves are equally pleased by both errors and hail a materialist and a magician with the same delight. Satan's fine with both errors because it gets you distracted from the Almighty God who lives within you. So do we sit at Jesus' feet and learn and let his power free us? Or do we quake at Jesus' authority and are scared of it and we drive him away? What is your response to a God that is God of the natural and the supernatural? That is Lord over all things. See, these two stories are are put together because if he's Lord over the natural and he's Lord over the supernatural, what does that mean? He's Lord over all. And Jesus in these two events on the same day proves he is Lord of all. Let's sit at his feet. Let's worship him. Let's give our fear to him. What, what, what are you afraid of this week? What's worrying you? What's keeping you up at night? Now, now just, last night I was up all night with dreams that, that were weird. I don't know what's it's from studying. I mean, one dream was our hot water heater burst and flooded the house. And another dream, a tree had fallen on the house. I'm like, all these natural disasters to our house. I'm like, God, what? I don't know if it's from studying the passage. But those are just dreams, and they don't reflect what God wants to do and his power. Who do you fear, and who are you going to testify about? God has had mercy on you. His power indwells you. That's your story. Tell it this week. Let's pray. Lord God, oh Lord, I pray that we would um, trust you. That as we, I know some have sat by hospital beds this week, that that would be not out of fear and worry, but out of trust that God is in control and has authority over them. Lord, I pray for those that are struggling with sin and not seeing victory there, that they would come to you and say, God, you are greater. Jesus, you are greater than that. Help me defeat this, and let's take care of this. Lord, I pray for victories this week over fear and worry. I pray for increased faith and trust in you that results in a story that we tell to the world of how great you are and of your salvation. Lord, help us to trust you more. In Jesus' name, amen.